Hello, this is Ben Eshmade and welcome to the King's Place podcast. From the 27th to the 29th of March, Outlandish Nights comes to King's Place, a series of concerts exploring darker musical paths and territories in folk music and storytelling. Co-curated by acclaimed songwriters Alastair Roberts and Emily Portman, in a moment I speak to Alastair Roberts and storyteller Debs Newbold, another performer in Hall One, but first I caught up with Emily Portman via Skype. Where did the idea for this festival come from in the first place? Well, we were asked to do it, actually, and I think it was probably out of uh, people noticing that there was a different take on folk music and that there were people around writing lots of new material and responding to folk traditions, like like myself and Alistair, and so it's really a celebration of, of that. Also looking at kind of darker aspects of folk music and stranger, weirder aspects of folklore as well. Tongue-tied, I am bound to weave my words with thistle-down. Sickle moon on the moor turns thistle-down silver and fingers raw. Well, well, to be more direct about it, you know, the title, Outlandish Nights, I looked it up in the dictionary, it says it's looking or sounding bizarre or unfamiliar. Does that, does that sound right? I think it we kind of probably see that as a, a, a bit of a compliment because, you know, maybe another way of saying that we're trying to do something original with with some, um, yeah, with some pretty bizarre and out there material that is our, our folk, <laughs> our folklore and our, our folk heritage. I have studied shell traces on your soft downy In, in the sort of canon of folk music, there, there, there is already quite a lot of darkness there already. Do you, do you particularly explore that more than anyone else, do you think? You know, I think that to a certain extent it's part of our um, psyche to use music and the, the fact that these dark songs are there means that it's not just us. <laughs> and I think everyone loves a good dramatic story, really. But at the same time, I know that that some people don't want that from their music. They want to be cheered up and uh, just so happens that we're more drawn to those. It's not only dark material, you know. It's, there's, I, I particularly love songs that have magical elements or elements of metamorphosis in them. Um, Dories have kind, some kind of transformation, you know. But I think, yeah, there is something really exciting about when strange things happen, like, you know, a woman's made into a harp or a man turns into the devil, you know, these kind of things. And I will sing my little song To soothe my brother's tears away To ring in my stepmother's ears Until she turns into the clay Do you think that also forces or encourages people to listen to the songs more closely? Well, I know that something that myself and um, Lucy and Rachel and Alistair all share is that is we're really drawn to stories and we, in a, in a funny kind of way, I think we, well, we'd find it the biggest compliment if we were called storytellers because the stories are at the centre of, of why we're making the music. I climbed Bonnie Banks as I sadly did wander I met the pet heaps as evening drew nigh. 
tell me a little bit more about the um, the Furrow Collective. I mean, what, what are the origins of that? And I believe this is your first um, London show. It was really born out of... I'm a great admirer of Alistair's songwriting and his singing of folk songs, and it's always really excited me to listen to his music because I can really hear all of the ballad influences just being woven in there in a really, what I feel is a really clever way. And he's guested on one of my albums, and I've done the same with him, so we've known each other over the years. Uh, I was talking with my trio about basically our, you know, our shared love of, of folk songs and how because as a trio, basically, we do music that I write, we wanted to kind of find an out- outlet for, you know, we have all have a lot of ballads in our repertoire. And we thought that we'd ask Alistair if he'd jump on board with us, basically, to make something a little bit different together. So our focus is on folk songs. And we're each coming to it with a whole kind of treasure trove of our own folk repertoires and hopefully to create something a little bit different. But also, you know, just as I was saying before, with with storytelling at the centre and something kind of stripped back and not trying to be too kind of fusion or smooth or, (laughs) you know, we're not trying to jazz it up or anything. We're just trying to almost strip it back and try and and capture some of that magic that just comes from a live performance of some of our favourite stories. I'm very excited that the Moulettes are going to be playing because I came across them at a folk festival a couple of years ago and they were just my favourite act. They're just a really exciting band and so it's great that they agreed to do it. And so after being, you can be entertained by us in a more kind of uh, understated way and then you can go and have a good dance with the Moulettes afterwards. And there's Alistair, of course, and he'll tell you more about his. Uh, shows as well. Tell me a little bit more about about the festival. Well, we'll be presenting this uh, work that I made in collaboration with the poet Robin Robertson. She's, we made an album called Her to Songs. The, the lyrics are by Robin and the music's by me. And so this is going to be the first kind of live full band presentation of it since we recorded it. Robin and I have done some appearances together but not not with the rest of the musicians who played on the records this will be the first time that the whole band's played them that material since the recording it, it sounds like a really incredible project it's all about this remote island and the sort of history of it that's right yeah that's about the archipelago of saint kilda which is about 50 miles off the, the west coast of scotland and it was inhabited until about 1930 the population gradually died out and then I suppose it just became unsustainable for them to remain there so they were evacuated in 1930. Where did you hear about it for the first time? Well I'd known about the the sort of story of St Kilda for a few years I'm not sure where I, where I would have first heard about it but I think maybe probably being grown up in Scotland it's just one of the it's one of the stories that's part of the, na- the national consciousness you know but uh, Robin was the one who was particularly interested in the story and he was he visited the islands and he was inspired to write this bunch of what were originally poems mm. about his experience and about the history and the, the legends and the, the topography as well of, uh, of St Kilda. It was early, early in the spring and early light we left that day across the grey sea sleeping still north four miles to Bonnet 
Well, he, he got in touch with me and said, because he'd enjoyed the previous collaboration, he's like, we should do some more stuff together about this St Kilda stuff that I've been working on. So he sent me the text and then we met up the next time I was in London and we had a similar kind of process. We sat down and I thought about what tunes might suit the words that he'd, he'd written and sometimes I wrote entirely new music and other times a few of the tracks are kind of based on traditional Gaelic songs that I kind of researched. Is there a certain amount of freedom of not having to write the lyrics yourself? It's hard to explain. You know, I suppose there's more distance from between you and the lyric that you haven't written so you can approach it differently as a singer. In a way, though, it feels like Robin and I, I think one reason that he wanted to work together is because we both, in our work at certain times, address kind of similar themes and subject matter and we, we kind of both quite interested in, you know, Scottish history and folklore and that kind of informs both our writing. So I think that, like the fact that we have this kind of shared sensibility to an extent, it almost feels like some of what he writes, I could have imagined writing myself, you know, it's kind of strange. When Neil MacLeod went over the rockets near 300 feet, he fell from high on... T- tell me more about the, the material and, and, and this island. When you were starting to read all these great poems that were going to become lyrics, what did you start picking out as things that really interested you? Well, there's a lot of interesting stories in there. You know, there's some quite gruesome, quite macabre kind of things are touched upon, you know, I imagine it was quite a, a hard life for the, the St Kildans and some of the anecdotes that Robin worked into his pieces kind of reflect that. You know, well, the, the St Kildans, they, they subsisted on the seabirds, you know, their entire economy and, and lifestyle was based on the seabirds. You know, they, they traded the feathers for goods from the mainland and they, they used the birds' skins for their clothing and their shoes, you know, they'd make shoes out of the necks of the, the birds and uh, they'd, they'd eat the flesh of the birds and the eggs obviously and um, they also used the oil of the birds to anoint wounds and to you know when a, when a child was born they'd anoint the umbilical cord with the fulmar oil and apparently that was one of the causes of their downfall because the birds were infected with tetanus you know and then the tetanus got into the, the bloodstream but yeah, there's one there's one song called farewell to the fowler which uh, is a kind of story about a guy who's been on the cliff face collecting these birds and as he's collecting them he's kind of tucking them under his uh, belt, you know, until he's got like a kind of skirt of these dead birds around his, like a kilt, you know, a kilt of dead birds around his waist and then he he falls into the the sea and he perishes, he drowns, but because of these birds, the gas in their intestines or whatever is keeping him afloat, so there's this image of him like a dead guy floating, like bobbing in the waves, you know, this skirt of birds around him. I suppose Robin was kind of attracted to this image for some reason, and that's one of the songs. Tell me a little bit more about the live performance. You've mentioned, obviously, the full band, but who are you bringing along? It'll be uh, Stevie Jones, who's going to play upright bass, a uh, great bass player, a uh, great musician all around, as all the guys are. And uh, Rafe Fitzpatrick is a fiddle player. Tom Crossley will play drums, and then I'll play guitar and sing. And Robin will do some reading of the poems. With these ones, you know, I wrote these songs and uh, uh, with Robin, you know, and um, 
took them to the band, to the rest of the guys, and we had like two or three days rehearsals in Glasgow, and it's just a case of, I'll show you my wee guitar part and the way I sing it, and then you just, you folks just do what you want around that, you know, so people just kind of come up with their own parts, you know. Tom came up with his own drums, and Stevie came up with his own bass lines, and Rafe came up with his own fiddle part, you know, and we'd sort of play it through and discuss it, and it becomes like a, a group creation in that way, you know. It's quite a fascinating process to me, that how that all kind of happens. Do you think anyone, when they've when they've come and heard this, either the, when they've heard the album or they've come to the performance, do you think they want to go and visit this place? I think some people will probably do, yeah. I mean, I think it's quite hard to get there. I think it's quite a long journey, and uh, you probably have to be prepared for not very much to do once you got there, apart from, like, marvel at the... Uh, astounding, sublime landscape, you know. Let's go from one set of collaborations to another. The other thing you're involved in within this festival, other than obviously helping to programme it, is the uh, Faro Collective. Is, is, is that, that very different in a lot of ways? Yeah, it's different. I mean, Emily Portman uh, kind of approached me because we'd done some gigs together before and uh, done some recording together before, and she asked if I was interested in making a record with her and Rachel Newton and Lucy Farrell. And so that's how, that, that's how that came about. Yeah, it's a totally different kind of project from the the heart to songs thing, you know. The the material that you're drawing on from that is that more more traditional material. It is. I think so far we've only done traditional songs. You know, we haven't done any self-written original material yet. Um, maybe we will in the future. But the album that we made at our next meeting is um, 13 sort of interpretations of traditional songs. Does it automatically differ in the sense that it's you know there's, there's more female components you know singing and and playing does that does that tip it in a in a different direction automatically i don't really want to get into like gender stereotyping <laughs> you know <laughs> pretty uh, it's pretty interesting being in a in a group with three women you know it's, it's a sort of new experience for me and I'm, I'm enjoying it so far i'm looking forward to the tour we're touring later this month together because i normally you know i mean i, I I play with men and women, but my, the core group that I play with in Glasgow is, is all guys, you know, so it's, it's a nice change from that. Maybe just a different way of playing, a different way of thinking about music, and it's kind of inspiring for me. Yes, I'd rather be tending my sheep, my ewes and my rams, and my little young lambs. I'd rather be I'm Debs Newbold. I'm a performance storyteller and a writer. Um, first question: are, are you looking forward to to being involved in this in this festival? Yeah, very much. Because it's an opportunity to do something in response to other people's work, which mm. is something I'm getting more and more excited by now in my work. Because uh, as a storyteller, you often work on your own. And lately, I've be- I've started to collaborate with a musician, Laurel Swift, and it just uh, adds another dimension. And so to be surrounded by musicians and artists that are involved in this festival is uh, already tickling my brain and making me think, what shall I do? Uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, there about the, the relationship between music and storytelling. What have you found the sort of results are? I mean, I would imagine that it's easier to listen to a story when you've got music there to sort of, I don't know, soothe or inspire you or excite you or something? Well, it can work like a score, definitely, like a, on a film. But what I'm really interested in is the connection between voice and, and sound. Of course, voice is a sound, but musical sound. When I, I'm working with uh, Laurel on, a, on our piece, it's about trying to see how how the music can take over the storytelling sometimes and how the music can can live in the voice as well because, you know, words have got so much more currency mm. than just what they mean um, in a dictionary. They mean a lot to us in terms of their sound, their cadence, the, the attack of the word or, you know, there's an awful lot in them. They're very rich, so exploring that really interests me. 
Um, I read you were an actress. Did that put you in good stead for, for being a storyteller? Yeah, you have to convince, as a storyteller, you have to convince people to um, to see a film inside their heads. That's what people have said to me after performances. And, and that requires a huge amount of um, input from them. So you've got to coax them into it. <laughs> it's quite hard work to listen, mm. but hopefully rewarding. And that's my job to make it as rewarding as possible so that you can see the images I see, but not necessarily how I see them. You'll see them the way you see them. In- interestingly to me when I look back my training as an actor originally was very physical it was physical theatre so a lot of um, uh, European influences so Grotowski uh, Meyerhold and people like that who are about the body mm. um, and my performances are quite physical but they're unconsciously physical because that language of physicality is just instinctive now I did a lot of work with Shakespeare and I mm. still do I work for the globe a lot and um, he's a master storyteller but he's also a master poet and so those two things come together for me the, the sounds, the sense, and um, you know the meaning of the story. Well, I suppose going on to Shakespeare, the, the thing is, and I, 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 will, I will admit it, I don't always understand everything he's saying. But if you're a good storyteller or a good actor, you can get the meaning across. Yeah, a good a good production of a Shakespeare shouldn't leave you confused. The actors need to understand what they're saying and, and communicate that. It doesn't always happen. It's complex and it's 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 our language. It's English, but we have to get our ear attuned to it. Um, so you know, you do get an ear for Shakespeare, just like you get an ear for poetry. But I do I tell Shakespeare stories and I mix my own language with with snippets of his. They're some of the most rewarding pieces for me that I do, I think, because of that, because people kind of come up to you afterwards and go, oh, I didn't think I liked Shakespeare, you know, and I do now. <laughs> they want to go and read the play and that's the best review you can possibly have. What's it like having so many stories floating around in your head? <laughs> <laughs> it's, really, it's very hard to explain. It sometimes gets a bit busy up there. Yeah, it can be tricky when you're doing a festival and you're booked for lots of different performances. I don't like to repeat myself. I will, you know, have a lot of things in my head at any one time and it is hard. It's like trying to bring order to a huge marketplace. But it's also, it means that you have a lot of resources in, in your mind. Um, yeah, you've got a lot of imagery to call upon. So, you know, if you're in a moment with an audience and you're um, describing something to them, you're describing a forest or you're describing a feeling and something happens, someone makes a sound or reacts or responds. Because you've got so many blueprints of stories and images in your head, you can reselect the way you're going to describe and explain that moment in response to what you feel from the audience. So it's dead useful, but it can drive you a bit bonkers. So you have to go out for big, long walks sometimes. <laughs> um, but you're not literally memorising stuff. You're kind of, I don't know, extemporising or how would you describe it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good word, extemporising. And uh, it's interesting to talk about this because um, people who go to storytelling a lot know that storytellers work without a script. But I'm hoping to, to find and meet new audiences, and I do all the time. And um, it's, it's nice for them to know, actually, that what they're listening to is really tailored for them. So a story will very much live in my head as a blueprint and a set of images. So I see it like a, like a graphic novel almost. I know what I'm looking at, and I know the spine of the story. I know where I'm going with it. But, I, but what I say to you isn't scripted. It's, it's, it comes naturally. And the more I tell a story, of course, the more certain favourite images turn into favourite phrases, and I can, I can bring them in more easily. But I haven't pre-decided what I'm going to say. If I'm doing Shakespeare, little bits will be scripted, but they'll be the bits that Shakespeare wrote, and I have to try and get those right. <laughs> but I don't know how I'm going to cradle those and what words and descriptions I'm going to put around them. I only know the images that I see. And 
the more I do it, the more fluidly those images turn into language. But nothing's ever fixed, so every performance is totally different. As a storyteller, what makes a good story? Well, there's, there are lots of answers to that. There are two that just popped into my head. One is that there are stories that have a good structure to them, a good narrative structure. And they can be seen as good stories. They're particularly good stories to tell uh, in a, you know, around a table in a pub or something like that. And they're entertaining. But they're not always the ones that interest me. A lot of the stories that I come across from, you know, when I'm plundering folklore, and I don't just do that. I write my own. I find them from other people. I take them from Shakespeare and Chaucer. But particularly the folk tales, they're not all, they're, their structure isn't always there because of the way they've been collected or written down. They sometimes feel a little unfinished or they're like beautiful threadbare bits of cloth that you have to re-embroider. And so you might look at them and think, oh, I'm not sure that's not got a brilliant structure, but there's something about it, something about the story that resonates with me. And it can be something really, really small in an otherwise unassuming looking tale. It can be something that happens to a character. It can be a setting. It can be a phrase. And if you've got that, you know why you're telling it. And if you know why you're telling it, a teller can make any story a good story. But they have to know why it's that story. Finally, sort of wrapping back around to the, the, the beginning of the interview again, it's early days, so you, I, I don't think you quite know exactly what you're going to be doing yet. I, even generally speaking, I mean, what's the sort of material that you think you might draw on for this performance? I'm moving towards, listen to Alistair speaking earlier, the dark, maybe darker stuff, maybe more atmospheric stuff. I know that Emily's work, she's worked with um, Angela Carter tales in the past, so, you know, very, very story-related, very... Slightly subversive material, darker material. I've worked with Mary Hampton, um, collaborated with her on a late junction session a few years ago. And that was one of my first, actually one of my first experiences as a storyteller and a writer of working very closely with a musician. It was herself and Dave Price and we had like seven hours in the studio to come up with something that would then be broadcast on Christmas Eve. <laughs> so it, the pressure was on and, and what, we've, what we found was something very atmospheric. It wasn't necessarily dark, because I like a little sprinkling of light with my darkness, what, what a friend of mine would call plus-minus endings, but, but something that takes you on a, a journey through, uh, through place and through uh, an atmosphere as well as through a narrative. So I'm looking at stories like that. Yeah, I'm thinking about, I mean, King Lear comes into my head because I tell King Lear maybe there's a section of that that would work. Maybe there's a couple of Duncan Williamson tales that might work. Um, perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps some of the, the, the black dog stories from, from Shropshire, from the, from the Midlands. I don't know, but something along those lines, something that really brings out the idea of music in my mind. I'm going to put you on the spot. I can't resist it. Could you maybe give us just a little bit of a story? What about a section from, from King Lear? Little tiny bit. So, so outside, the sky was cracking into a storm such as this country has never seen before and hopefully never will see again. It was raging and light came out of the sky like sparks off a Catherine wheel. The rain fell down black as pitch and out there on the heath, under the oppressive inky black sky, was King Lear, the white pale figure of a king, now like a babe, naked, crownless, cloakless, his white hair flailing, his arms outstretched, and he was looking up at the sky, and he was talking to the storm as if he was commanding it. Blow winds and crack thy cheeks. Rage blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes. Spout, you sulfurous and thought-executing fires. Singe my white head. Rumble thy belly full. Spit fire, spout rain, he cried. And with every crack of thunder, it seemed to him that the storm was answering him. 
And sometimes the king felt he was riding the storm's back. Sometimes it was riding his. And other times he felt the storm lift him up into its cold, wet, chill arms and rock him like a baby. And through the sheet rain, although Leah couldn't see, a tiny, tiny light was twinkling. And it was the lantern of the Earl of Gloucester, his friend, who was fighting against the wind to get to the figure of the king, to save him, to bring him indoors, to give him some succour. And when he finally reached the king, his head was tipped up to the sky. He was drinking in the rain. And Gloucester put his hand on Leah's shoulder and he said, Sire, this is no night for you to be outside. Your daughter, Cordelia, she waits for you in Dover. You must go to her, Sire. And Leah tipped his face down from the sky, looked at his friend unrecognisingly, and then said softly, with a smile, you must bear with me, friend. I fear I am not in my perfect mind. Thanks to Emily, Alistair and Debs for talking to us. Outlandish Nights, which is presented by Alan Behrman Music, takes place on Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of March and includes Alastair Roberts and Robin Robinson's Herta Song Project, the Furrow Collective with special guest Mary Waterson, the Moulettes, and finishes in great style with the Emily Portman Trio with special guests Mary Hampton and Debs Newbold. I'm Ben Eshmaid and you've been listening to a King's Place podcast. For more details about these events and ticket links, please visit kingsplace.co.uk forward slash outlandish nights. kingsplace.co.uk forward slash outlandish nights. Thanks for listening.